0: Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learn paintpodcastcom slash newsletter.
1: And you know, I really love to mix paint and I prefer to have my mixing do the work versus a tube of paint do the work. Hello and welcome
0: to the Learn to Paint podcast, the show that gives you artistic tools you can put to work. I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers. Today I'm talking with artist, Amy Bernger, In the conversation, you'll learn why sometimes it makes sense to take the thinner out of your medium mixture and just use straight oil, how the right brush can get you sharp edges, and how paper cutouts might help you begin to understand the structure of your own work, plus a whole lot more. In this episode's extended cut bonus, Bernger talks about getting loose and why you might want to consider painting over those old paintings. You can take a listen by joining the Podcast Art Club over on Patreon at any tier. For show notes and to sign up for the newsletter list where you'll get three new ideas from guests every week, head to learn to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 73. I begin the conversation by asking Berger how she got started in art.
1: I got started as a kid. I just loved art. I loved nature. I loved being outside. And I liked everything about drawing and painting, right down to paint by numbers. Studied it in high school. It was one of the few classes I was good at. And then I went to college and couldn't think of anything else that I would study that seemed to make the most sense and the place I felt most at home.
0: Well, then did you find oil specifically in college then?
1: I did. I started off with oil painting. I actually spent very little time with any other medium. And I don't exactly know why that was. I I just, I landed with oil painting and really liked it. I do love to draw and I love charcoal. I like the process of drawing, but I really taught, you know, like water media. I taught myself after working as a professional
0: artist and acrylic, which
1: I'm not a pro at, but I did teach myself that
0: later. In that you've tried now a bunch of different mediums, what does oils give you that those other media don't?
1: I like how the pushing around feels. I love that buttery feeling of oil paint that I don't really get the same enjoyment out of acrylic. I do like acrylic, but I like that butteriness. And I also really enjoy the luminosity I get with oil paint that I struggle a little bit with in water-based media that I'm sure is due to my lack of knowledge versus what the medium can actually do or not do.
0: Well, then we're going to transition into materials. How many colors do you generally work with?
1: That totally depends. It just depends on what time of year it is. It depends on the painting I'm working on. It depends on if I am feeling like experimenting with color and I want to have some new colors on my palette. However, all that being said, I do spend a lot of time teaching and when I'm teaching, the one thing I do is work with a limited palette. And I think it's a great way to learn how to be a color mixer is by using a limited palette. And since I teach that, I think it's really important I know that. So I know what I'm talking about. So I do actually use a limited palette quite frequently in my painting process. The paint colors themselves might change, but they are limited so that I'm mixing one into the other.
0: So when you say limited, you don't necessarily mean something like a split primary, like you might be limiting in different ways.
1: Yeah, I'll limit it in lots of different ways. If I'm teaching, generally speaking, the limited palette that I use is based on temperature and primary. So it's a double primary palette and I'm using one warm, one cool with each primary color plus white. And I also use, I generally will use black. I don't have to, but I like especially chromatic black. So I'll keep that there. But if I'm painting on my own, it may just be, I may sometimes think, oh, I wonder what would happen if I used these colors together.
0: Right. But you're never wondering what would happen if you use these 20 colors together, like you still pretty keep it limited.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I do. And you know, I really love to mix paint and I prefer to have my mixing do the work versus a tube of paint do the work, generally. And I am a big pre-mixer. I find that very meditative. I enjoy the process of mixing paint. I enjoy seeing how far I can push my own mixing. So I do tend to work with a... I have, for the most part, 10 colors or less on my palette. Generally, it's around 8 Do you use any mediums as part of your process? Always, especially with. I'm primarily a brush painter. I do use a palette knife sometimes, but I am most comfortable with my brush. And so I use a really simple medium. It's the same medium that I teach with. And I start out with a medium comprised of paint thinner, whatever some people like different kinds, but you you know, Gamsol is certainly super and it really doesn't smell. And then I use refined linseed oil, half and half. I start out with that. But if I'm working on a painting, in which I'm going to be, you know, it's going to last over several sessions, you know, sometimes it's a one and done paint session. But if I'm working over several, I'll transition to just using linseed oil. The I'll take the thinner out of it and just use oil as I build the paint.
0: Is that so it has longer drying time, like you can
1: get back in there? Actually, you know, it's more because the thinner tends to cut through the previous layers. So if I am choosing then just oil, then it has a, I have a better chance of it laying on top of the previous paint history. And it also helps reduce the possibility of muddiness where I don't want it. I mean, I'm a big fan of gray, brown, and mud, and I think it brings out a lot of really beautiful, luminous color that is around it. But if I don't want an area to get really mucky, muddy, then I will take out the gamsol
0: or the thinner. Right. Is that because it's then pulling up the color underneath and mixing it?
1: Yep. So... I feel like I'm always using cooking references in my teaching. But if you think about salad dressing, you have oil and you have the vinegar is to cut through the oil. Like it does mix together, but it does cut through the oil and it thins it versus you have a really different consistency if you made a dressing that's just oil based.
0: You said you're a brush painter primarily. What brushes do you use? And almost more importantly, what do those brushes give you?
1: I am an oil painter, but I pretty much use acrylic painting brushes. And I love Trekel brushes. That's a company in California. You might know about them since you're a West Coast person. But I like these brushes. I think they're called Opal 4000s. And they are a synthetic brush. I will use hog bristle as well. But I like the synthetic because I feel like it's a little snappier. And I almost always only use a bright brush. So it's not as tall as a flat brush but it does have a flat top. And so it's, you know, it's that slightly shorter brush length, but not as long as the flat shape. And does that help you cut into shapes more easily? Mm-hmm. I feel like I can cut, it's like I'm going skiing in my painting. Like sometimes I can cut right through the paint feel like I'm curving. Sometimes it's almost like I'm drawing, you know, I build up a certain amount of paint and I'm, then I'm drawing through it. And sometimes I'll use tools to do that, but a bright synthetic brush really helps with that versus I've noticed when I use a hog's bristle brush and brush, and this really works for certain painters and I do have a place for it in my painting, but it'll sometimes sort of soften the edges versus I like them to be sharp and distinct. And I can cut and mold through them as I make my way through my painting surface, and it helps. It helps make the strokes very visible, which, generally speaking,
0: I really like. It sounds like you primarily use one brush. So, is there benefit in like using one brush, figuring out like the extent of what it can do, as opposed to jumping around between brushes trying to find one for every part of the painting?
1: Yeah, I mean, I
0: could never paint. Like that. I thought I would forget. (laughs) I would forget what
1: part of the painting I was supposed to be using a certain brush for. And I am a person who likes a lot of simplification with my painting setup and process with my materials. I like predictability. I like to know what my paintbrush is going to do. I have found, or you know, over the years that I generally have actually honed down all of my materials so that it's pretty much just using that bright brush to do most of my work. I very occasionally have the need for a point, but it's more, it's the better brush, like a higher quality brush. The end of it, of that bright brush will actually act like, even on a bigger brush, it'll act like a fine pencil. I can make it do some drawing work for me. So again, I don't experiment. But I also at this point, don't. I don't want to say I don't need to. I like the strokes I'm able to make now with the paintbrush. And I haven't really, like I've never once used a fan brush. I don't even know what it does. And I think because I think I've heard it smooths or something, I've thought, oh, well, that's not the brush for me. I need a smooth area of painting surface, like I need a hole in my my paintings. They just, they are very much around energy and stroke versus smoothing that away. And the same with a point. You know, if I, that term, I know we'll talk about this later, but that term loose, which can mean so many different things, but for me, it helps that bright, flat brush and always a little bit larger than I'm comfortable with helps me escape starting to feel like I'm outlining an object, that I'm drawing with it, I'm drawing contours of a shape and become very precious with it. Instead, I'm forced into a certain amount of messiness because that worked for me. And it also creates a certain level of frustration that has a positive outcome (laughs) later. I keep the brush as a way to facilitate that.
0: Well, then, could you give us a bird's eye view of your process for your still life?
1: Sure. And I'll give you a process of a new painting versus working over old ones. And that's a totally different process. And I use that almost as frequently. But if I am starting from scratch, I will create a still life. Now, I see the still life setup that I make is a reference. It is not one I feel like I have to stay true to, that I need to draw to scale, that I I don't see that that's the most important thing. So I'll arrange objects to me that seem to relate together by shape and also that they have a relationship or a interesting contrast by color and that there's a generally speaking a really specific light source that I find interesting. And also that may incorporate an environment, you know, so it might incorporate a window which and and a landscape outside of that, which I'm perpetually interested in because that makes a very active painting surface for me. There's a lot going on and a lot for me to both capture but also simplify. So I'll make that setup and then I start with a plain panel. I don't tone my panels at all. I know a lot of people do. Maybe I should, but i it's just not been a part of my practice. And if I'm going right into the panel, I won't make a preparatory drawing. I never have, but I will think of everything in terms of shapes. So I look and I see in my mind, I see rectangles and circles and triangles, squares, and I start to This is the one time I use a small brush, even though it's usually a bright. I'll generally use something like a transparent color like India yellow. It's more often yellow. And I'll use that with some medium. And I'll just start to make some dots. I'll make a series of lines and shapes. Not a specific drawing until I start to see some shapes emerge. And I like how they relate together. And it, that process gives me a lot of flexibility so I can think, oh, you know what, it would actually be more interesting if this object was maybe this much further away. I might not change that in the still life setup at all. I've just made that decision in my mind as I'm working. So I'm thinking about those objects. I'm using that brush, making dots, marks. I often call them, when I'm teaching, I'll call them guidelines. And that again helps me not feel like I'm making a drawing that then I need to feel like I'm filling in the lines and I'm just painting within that object and it tightens up my process in a way that is not helpful for me. Then once that process is done, I take a much bigger brush and I will start to lay in. I often start with, I'm trying to think of which way, but I generally will start with darker, deeper values and I'll start to lay them in and very rapidly. I'll lay in a, some darker values and then I'll either head to lighter values, not the lightest, but lighter values. And then as I, the painting process, I start thinking a lot more about, you know, saturated color, the chroma, really pumping up colors where I feel like it needs it. And I look at how things are relating. And then I have mid-values. And then ultimately, I'm usually putting in highlights or something that might need, maybe might need a smaller brush. Those will go in near the end of the painting process. But most of the painting is made with a pretty good-sized brush. And I'm working by those shapes
0: and then those values. Do you, in general, build up a painting... All together, or do you sort of build up an area at a time? Pretty much all
1: together. You know, I'm always thinking, well, I do it for a number of different reasons, but I am thinking about the picture as a whole. Though I certainly, you know, I go to a certain area and I will work on that to, you know, my satisfaction or even just my interest. And then I do find, if I find I'm starting to kind of scroll with my paintbrush, like I'm not really paying attention. That's a time for me to stop and go to another area. So if I'm losing some interest versus starting to really mess up that part of the painting because I'm bored, I'm just not paying attention. I, For me, I know that means I need to switch it and I need to go somewhere else that will hold my attention because when I lose my attention, I mean, it could be it's time to just take a break from painting in general for the day or whatever, go eat lunch or something. But often it's just, I need to just be engaged somewhere else. So I will bop to another area of the painting, and then I might go to another. But they're all working. You know, I'm thinking about that painting and as it's building, because I, I don't really have any predictive knowledge as to what that painting is going to be at the end. And generally, I like being surprised. <laughs> Sometimes I'm surprised in a bad way, and I don't like how it looks. But I think, for me, the engagement in painting is that i I still don't really understand what the paint is going to do. And I still don't ever really understand what the colors are going to look like together, which is why I'm still engaged with painting. I still feel like i'm I'm still surprised in a way that I find fun and exciting and a uh, It's probably another reason I'm not very good at learning rules for paint. I mean, I've got a lot of them, but I don't have them all memorized. And I also don't believe all of them. I think color and mark making is really magical.
0: Often, especially as beginners, like one of the first ideas we come into is thumbnails as the place to do thinking. But I'm really struck by your process like you don't do thumbnails, but what kinds of thinking, like what is the thinking you're doing in that still life setup? And then what is the thinking you're doing as you're, you know, laying down those guidelines?
1: For personal or when I'm teaching, it is different. When I am teaching, I will instruct in some other preparatory things to do, but I won't do a, I really don't do a drawing ahead of, I consider that to be a drawing process for me. And I'm just fluid enough with it, personally, but I wouldn't necessarily, I don't necessarily think that's always a great way for people. If they're really new to painting, I don't know that that's a really great way for them to start. And I do have some other exercises for them to do.
0: How do you suggest that if someone is sort of newer to painting, they do that planning part Great
1: question. And I've tried to come up with some different ways for people to start their paintings, because I think everybody responds differently to different beginnings. So if I was teaching landscape painting, and you know, being out in the landscape, I would have some preparatory drawing process being done, even if it's just with charcoal, and just to sort of loosen up. Because landscape can be so incredibly overwhelming. There's a lot of stimuli and it's really hard to know what to focus on. But if I'm teaching online and so people see my process from, you know, step A, then I will do a number of different things in order to help people start to think about their painting and composition. And also to I'm just always trying to think of a way for people to work that helps them stay away from building up too many contours of objects, and then staying within the contours. So I really like cutouts. And so I do a lot of paper cutouts. And sometimes I'll use that in my own process. I can't do that when I'm outside landscape painting, that would be frustrating. But inside, I can take, you know, a still life setup, or if I'm using photo reference, such as I'm teaching people to paint, and we're using my photo references, or I'm giving them specific directions in theirs. I'll have people use those three values, black, gray, white. And it'll, so the activity does two different things. I'll have them make major shapes. So they're not cutting out a bouquet of flowers. They're cutting out circle. They're not perfect either. It's a very quick process. I just take a pair of scissors and start cutting out shapes that also correspond to the darkest places in the composition, the lightest places, and then the medium places. And that really helps people begin to see composition devoid of specific objects, and also to stay out of getting mired in unnecessary details. So that's fun. And you don't have to affix it to anything. It's not gluing down. Now, people also use Notan, which if people that is, I do have that app. I don't respond to it, but that's just me. It's because I spend a lot of time on computers anyways, and also Procreate. I've tried them. I know they can do a lot. I'm that hands-on person versus working using a stylus or something. I just don't respond to. But if people want to use Notan and they want to see things by values in major shapes, that's a great way to do it. And then you also could make a preparatory painting, like a little timed painting that has three values in it, three values, and you're just looking for shapes. So uh, those are some really nice ways to start painting where there's just not a lot of pressure. And also, I think it's great to have drawing skills, but I'm not giving people a four-year bachelor's degree in studio or fine arts where they're not going to paint for the whole year. They're going to have design and drawing classes. I don't work with people for that long. You know, I have people for generally two to four sessions and I want them to be able to feel successful. And I also want people to have some overall understanding of a composition in the kind of the quickest way possible. The cutouts for me, I I feel like everybody understands that. And even if you don't, they don't want to do it themselves. If they're online with me, I work right from the beginning and talk through it with everyone. And I'll say, what would happen if I took this shape, this rectangle? What would happen if I moved it over here? Like, would that make a more interesting composition? And then people can see, oh, I can manipulate that. Like, I don't have to just look at what's in front of me and see that as a, something I have to stay true to, or it's a barrier. It's a really a beginning process for people to see. And this is, I would say, this is the most important part of my teaching is, I want people to see that they are creating a painting. That's what they're doing. They're not replicating what's in front of them. I mean, that may be, and that might be really enjoyable, but ultimately they are creating a painting that is theirs and it's made from their hand and their vision. And we all have a unique one. And that all of this nature that is in front of you is just helping you do that. And so I feel like that's a great way to feel liberated from it, but you're using it at the same time.
0: I had never sort of appreciated how cutting something out makes it so easy to move it, as opposed to even with a, you know, like a quick value sketch, like you can't really move a dark once you lay it down.
1: That's right. And it takes material. I mean, I just, you know, honestly go to a craft store. Like don't be precious about the materials and you don't have to feel like you spent time mixing paint and now it's on this panel. Now you can't use this panel <laughs> for a real painting, you know, or what? <laughs> so instead you can just cut things out and quite honestly, cutting things out really fun. And it also brings a very, I don't want to say a childlike process, but everybody responds to children's artwork Because kids have a way of simplifying things to its essence. And we all love looking at that work. And everybody universally says, how do we lose that? You know, and it's that liberation that kids experience. And. You know, I spent in my career, I spent a lot of time not being an art teacher, but working in schools. And I worked with middle school and uh, high school and college kids. But I spent some time working with the littlest kids. And I just loved watching them work. And they're so happy when they're working, that they're happy with the act of cutting out. Like you, the process is fun. Never mind what they end up with. It's They're just having a good time while they're working. And I think, oh, yeah, that's what it's all about.
0: You know, listening to you talk about like the process of cutting things out, like we often think of that, I mean, I often think of that planning part is important because of the planning. But what I hear you saying is that that kind of planning, because it's so freeing, is important for looseness. Like that, like planning isn't just so you have a plan, it's also so you have a place in your process to not feel trapped by decisions you're making.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. So you can really, you know, you just move things around as you need to. And it also, it really can, those cutouts can show, shows me how making one small change can entirely change the composition. Just one small movement or maybe changing the value. Or also, it's a great way to confront our assumptions because when we see an object that is white, but it's in shadow, people still want to take that cutout and they want it, they reach for the white paper when in fact, if it's really in shadow, they need the black paper. So it's also a kind of like a sneaky way to start thinking about color
0: through value and through cutouts. So we did a tech call, you talked about structure being a big part of what's important to you. So and so people are going to hear it in your class too. So when you are talking about a painting having a structure, what do you mean by that?
1: We just go right to the cutouts. That's structure. I'm thinking about what are the bones of the painting? So am I going to find out is that painting, say it's a still life painting that is a, a lot about, but it includes a lot of an environment. I might find that out as I'm doing those cutouts, or as I'm doing for me, maybe doing some guidelines later. But I want there to be a focus. But sometimes I don't know what it is, like until I'm using my guidelines and dots, etc. in my own personal painting, or if I'm creating those cutouts, the cutouts for me help establish sort of the strongest parts of the composition, the place where I might find out as I'm cutting things out or I'm thinking about, especially thinking about just black and white, very strong value contrast. It helps me think about where I'm going to enter the painting and also where the viewer is going to. I don't think about the viewer a whole lot, but later, I think, where's the place that somebody's entering? Where are they entering the painting? And are there too many places to enter the painting? Are there too many places so that now my eye is skittering all over the place? And I don't have any place to focus. So sometimes it it will help me find like the superstar (laughs) of the painting or, you know, like who gets the lead role and where are the supporting actors here? You know, like does that help this particular painting? And I'll find that out when I'm creating these paper cutouts and also my guidelines, like what's the actual, I don't want to say there's just one important part to the painting, but what are the main places of this painting in terms of the theater and that's i build the structure around that
0: you mentioned that you try to make sure that a person has a place but not too many places to enter a painting what allows an eye to enter a painting like what is a good example of something allowing an eye to enter a painting versus a painting that doesn't have any spaces for an eye to enter that's a great question
1: i'll say these things and i'll just contradict myself later but if i think about a place where there isn't a focus in a painting. It's where everybody or everything is created really equally. And that may be equal in value. And every and this is a common thing as I see everything's in a mid-range value. So There's no place for my eye to focus in or hone in on because there's no deep value and there's no light value. It's just, I'm just stuck in a mid-area land. My eye doesn't know where to go because there's so much democracy equality in the painting versus, you know, it doesn't mean I have to, in a landscape painting, I'm looking out my window right now, just at this tree. It doesn't mean I have to have that one tree, but I may need to have some groupings, you know, and discipline myself as to, am I going to pick out one or two areas in this painting where those trees are going to be
0: brought out or the light on the trees? Is structure then something you find in the reference or is some structure something you make from that reference
1: jeez you know it could be a mixture of both i mean i may not see it as i'm looking you know and i'm observing you know i'm not a narrative painter you know so i'm not ahead of time creating a story that i and i have a specific layout because i i have a story to tell i think that's wonderful painting but it's just not something that i do because i am taking my cues from the natural world and I'm creating something on a panel. So I'll look for a place to paint, or I could just look around my house if I'm, you know, because I really love the idea of domesticity and just, you know, what's actually in my surroundings versus creating something very formal and not of me. So I I may look for something that's going to have some innate structure to it or, you know, a setup or a composition, but I am going to impose my will on it as well. You know, because I If I'm out landscape painting, quite honestly, one of the best things to do is just sit down and make your landscape wherever you are. I have spent too many hours driving around looking for the perfect place to paint and it won't find it. And I have told students a story about I did, I was invited to paint in a very formal rose garden, which I was, I thought, oh, okay, that's interesting because I've never done that before. And (laughs) it was so formal. I turned around and painted the dumpster. (laughs) And it was a good painting, but I did not know what to do with all that structure. It was already imposed on everything. And so I I turned around and I saw a lot more interesting light and dark and some background landscape with this dumpster. And in my mind, it made a more compelling, you know, and beautiful picture than I ever would have made if I with rows of, of cultivated roses.
0: Well, then you mentioned light there. Can something have good structure if it doesn't have good light, like strong light on it? Well, for me,
1: I I respond to having some fairly focused light just because I think I enjoy it. But you know, somebody, a painter like Mirandi, I think people would say, no, he didn't need that. Even, I mean, I've seen his studio in Bologna and it's just incredibly beautiful, but that's very muted light. And painters also will set up all kinds of you know, muslin or something to diffuse the light. So you don't have to have a strong source. I just think that's, I'm drawn to having a stronger light source. So it depends on the kind of painting that you want to make and the painting you
0: like to make. Does having a strong light source from sort of a beginner standpoint, make it easier in the sense that you have to make up less if there is like a true light and dark in the thing you're looking at?
1: Yeah, I think so. Although if it's Really, really, if the light source is so strong that you're not able to see those midtones, sometimes that's more challenging. So, having a strong light source, I guess a strong directional light source. So, if you're painting a bouquet, say, or a bouquet within a formal still life setup, if you can clearly see that that light is coming from the upper left hand side and down to the left hand side, if it's coming from that one direction, I think that does help you establish strong shadows. And you can see that they relate to each other, but between objects, and you'll see the light, and then you'll see a shadow area. You might also then learn about highlights. So, having that kind of uni, you know, directional light when you have light coming from all different light sources <laughs> or two to three, that can be really challenging because you'll have shadows coming up from a lot of different areas, and it's really hard to make sense of that. Again, it depends on what you like to paint. I think as a beginner, that would not be the direction I would send somebody (laughs) is, you know, putting two different light sources on one still life set. I would put one, just leave it
0: simple. What are some of the biggest challenges you see your students facing with structure? You know, I think it's
1: figuring out where they want to focus within a painting. If I had 12 people in the same room with me, we could all look at the same bouquet. I mean, aside from the fact that everybody's at a different point of view, but everybody was using the same setup. I'll guarantee you, people are going to find really different. They're going to find a different focus based on that bouquet. So somebody may be really intrigued by one singular flower because that one just happens to be really well lit and the others are sort of a mass of shadow. And then somebody else might, they might see more mid values and also they may see more flowers within that bouquet and paint a flower painting that is much more around the full bouquet and those how those blooms relate to each other versus one that's like the star. I think it depends on what people see in that and what the struggle is knowing what they should focus on. That is a struggle for,
0: I think, students at the beginning. What I'm struck by, like thinking through your process, especially the guide when you're doing the guidelines, is that that seems like that's a space for you to like figure out your opinions on things. It's like, it's not necessarily like you look at and say, I want to paint this. You give yourself time in your process. And it sounds like encourage your students to create a space where they can figure out their opinion on what they want to paint and then go from there to create a good painting. Yeah, that's a good assessment,
1: actually. I really want people to figure out their own take on nature because we all have our own particular visions as artists and creators, that there's some things that we respond to so strongly and others things that we're just not very interested in. And that also applies to the method of painting, the colors that we choose, whether we like really thick, juicy paint, or, you know, really thin and paint that doesn't show a mark. But I think you learn those things and you have your own personal opinions with experience and it'll allow yourself to develop that this is really important. I can teach a class. Actually, teaching online is a great example. So if everybody is using, if the assignment happens to be some photos of a bouquet and let's just say, okay, here's the one I'm going to give all of you to work on. Let's do this, this, and this. Everybody's is really different, even though it's the same exact Setup. People are really intrigued by something different. Their brush stays where mine doesn't. They see a color relationship that nobody else did, and that's the fun of painting is getting to see people's personal expression emerge. You mentioned that you premix your colors. Why? What does that give you? It gives me a lot of freedom later. It just works for me, and I'm an impatient painter. So if I Pre mix ahead of time about 80% of my colors. Then, when I'm ready to start painting, I know I really want that color in front of me, even if it's just in a ballpark range. Then I can do some mixing with my paintbrush right on my palette between colors, or I could also do a little bit on the panel as well. But I don't have to stop and mix with my palette knife. I just really want to paint and keep painting. Now, I know I'm going to have to stop. I have to stop and mix at certain times, like that's natural. But also the type of brush work that I'll make and the level of energy has to do with accessibility. So the more I have to stop, then that kind of slows me down a little bit. When I'm looking at a setup and I'm mixing, I find that very meditative, actually. And it makes me think a lot about what I'm going to work on, you know, even that process of just mixing paint. So, you know, it does
0: a, a number of things for me. Yeah. Thinking about the more that you have to stop too, that does that premise also work with having to make decisions? Like you've made decisions so that then you don't have to stop and make those decisions in the painting? Yes.
1: Yeah. Like I'm trying to set myself up for success. So I try to work with my assets. And so I know that my paint surface, you know, like the more involved and energetic it is and searching, I end up with a painting at the end, that is more satisfactory to me. So, if I have the paints ready and I have everything is ready for me, I have a better chance of achieving success that way versus, you know, more that I have to stop and I sort of lose my momentum. And I also, I really just like getting lost in a painting. I like when I have my paints all ready to go and then I start. And I feel like I have this experience in most of the painting process, whether it turns out to be a good painting or a bad painting. But I I think of it as a like a bell curve and I start out and I've got this energy that I'm bringing toward the image. And then as I'm rising up the bell curve, it's like the bell curve of panic. <laughs> I've got all of this information. I think, oh man, how am I going to simplify this? Or what am I going to do with this part here? But I must really like that anxiety, you know, because it I keep doing it. So then I hit like the peak and then I feel like, oh, okay like I've grabbed the gold ring, like now I know where I am. I start to relax a little bit more. And I'm, you know, I mean, I could go, if it's not successful, my bell curve could go way down at the end. But I have a certain amount of enjoyment after I've hit that level of panic. And this is where, as so many of us do, like a Garmin watch, you know, people wear Apple watches. And I always notice that when I'm at the height, of panic slash enjoyment, I'll get a notification on my watch that says, you're experiencing a lot of stress right now. (laughs) Time to calm down. And I think, this is weird. It's like the thing I like to do most in the world that when I'm at the peak of, you know, like really concentrating is telling me I'm too stressed out. So I know I'm having a body response and I must really like it, you know, because I keep wanting to do it. But I find that fascinating to now have, I have like this physical proof that, you know, my body is under a certain amount of stress. And actually, I'm getting way off base here, but I did have an art history professor who said he wanted to inflict a certain amount of anxiety in his students because he felt like they learned best with some stress. And I think there's something to, you know, it's not like I want to inflict stress on other people, but on myself, I think that there is a point in which that's enjoyable where I'm really concentrating that is a certain positive stress, but it is stress nonetheless.
0: What I love hearing you talk about that is that I think so often as beginners, we think of stress as we must be doing something wrong because we've heard of this amazing flow state that indicates you're doing everything right. So I I can imagine like there's a bunch of listeners right now saying like, oh, thank goodness, I also feel stress. And like, maybe that's okay, depending on what you want from your process. But like, maybe that's just how you work.
1: Absolutely. And I, like I say, I, I think that I like the stress. You know, I think I like that panic of not knowing how things are going or I'm worried or I don't know if I'm doing, you know, like is this part coming out exactly if I want it to? That that part I, I must respond to. Like I think it's, there has to be some physical state that I'm really drawn to because I keep doing it over and over again. I really don't think people should worry about if they're... <laughs> They're feeling some misery when, when they're painting. Like that's a part of painting and it's a part of learning how to paint and pushing yourself to learn more about color, learn a new material, learn how to draw better. All of that learning is stressful and it's not a bad thing. I think I would worry more about somebody who's really avoiding stress in any kind of process. Like I just don't
0: know how you avoid that and continue to learn and grow. I don't know how you avoid stress. I want to make sure I ask a follow up question to your color mixing. When you say you mix about 80%, what colors are you mixing? Are you like mixing the light, mid, and dark of every color, or how do you approach that color mixing of getting those colors ready? Well, I go for the just,
1: it's like eating dessert first. I look at whatever attracts me first is the color I'm going to mix first, but I tend to create a palette that's fairly saturated. It's a fairly intense palette. And so If I see a hot pink, you know, that's probably what I'm going to mix first. You know, it'll be the first thing that I see or and then go into oranges. And I, I might mix a couple. I might mix a darker, cooler one and then a lighter, slightly warmer one. But I don't really get a whole lot more specific than that because what I have found with the limited palette painting is that it really gives an opportunity for people to mix sort of a hyped up palette and have some real fun with mixing and exploring color. And you're just going more intense than you need to because you're going to start to mix those colors in with each other. And as soon as you mix them in with each other, then you're creating some toned down colors. It's just naturally going to happen. As soon as you start to mix all of them together, you know, they're all making their way toward grays and browns eventually. The more you mix them together, so why not have some fun and make some really kind of hyped up color and let yourself start there and then work your way your way down. Because I do find a lot of people are really afraid of color and either afraid of mixing it or afraid they might allow themselves to mix it. But then they put it onto the panel and get rid of it as quick as possible because it just seems too outrageous, you know, but I feel like we'll just leave it there and start to see what's going to happen with it. Because as you work, your paintings will naturally start to tone down a little bit, but you have an intensity that you've started with that is one, it's fun to mix and two, it's fun to try it. You know, it's fun to try and see what happens. And then as your painting builds, you're going to get a lot more neutrals in there as well over time.
0: You're an artist who teaches classes. Any advice for people trying to find the right teacher?
1: Don't feel like you have to get stuck with one teacher. Explore and try different people. There's some great things about being comfortable with somebody, but if you are new to painting. So accessible now. And I have to say that, you know, the coronavirus was just terrible in so many different ways. But in terms of creating a really robust online learning experience for people, there's so many venues right now, and they can be quite reasonable. So try out some different people and see what sticks and also try some different teachers. And also, if you can, material wise, fiddle around, noodle around with some different materials and You know, you may, like just when I was talking about cutouts, cutouts may not be for everybody. Somebody may really enjoy no tan. I don't, but someone else definitely does. So allow yourself to explore.
0: Well, then if someone came to you and said, I want to get really good at painting, what advice do you give them? You know, just work,
1: put the time in. And that means, so if you can have a little corner in your house that is, or your apartment, wherever it is that you're living. If you can set up a little place and leave it set up, if you take it down, it's very hard to keep momentum. You're not even letting yourself build it. So even if it's a table easel on a corner table and then get a pallet that you can cover with plastic wrap or you can put in the freezer so that you don't have to clean it all up and put it away and some more of the putting away. So one, find a space for yourself. Two, come up with the bare minimum of materials list to just let yourself try. But three, leave the workspace up and running. You know, clean your brushes. Like I'm big on cleaning brushes and having clean materials for the next day or the next time you're going to be painting, but have a space and leave it there. It doesn't have to be a full studio. How many people can have that? I mean, I do, but... I'm lucky, and I have been doing this for a long time, and that's the prior- my husband's a painter too, and that's the priority in our life. So having studio space has always been a part of our marriage, separate and together. We've had our own separate
0: spaces, and now we have one together. You can learn more about Amy Bernger at her website, amybernger.com. That's amy, B-R-N-G-E-R dot com, and on Instagram and Facebook, and we'll link to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for being with us today, Amy thanks for inviting me. This has been a lot of fun. We're finished with the main episode, but there's more great conversation with Amy Bernger at patreon.com learn to paint podcast. Bernger talks getting loose and why you might want to consider painting over those old paintings. Plus, you'll have access to over 25 additional extended cut bonuses with guests, all for the price of coffee plus tip. For show notes, head to learn to podcast slash episode 73. Thank you to everyone over in the Podcast Art Club. You make this show possible. Extra shiny thank yous to High Gloss Supporters, Andrew Atterberry, Debbie and Brian Miller, Rihanna DeRold, Janet Wheeler, Nancy Bryant, Katherine Ordway, Pam Lyle, Victoria Young, and Slow River Studio. Happy painting.